James chapter 4. We finally got to chapter 4, and I'm excited for um, what James has got to say to us and what God is going to teach us from his word. Um, The uh, question I was asking myself as I was studying this and the question I'm going to pose to you guys is, what will you fight for? What will you fight for? If you ask somebody that question, I think there's a lot of different answers that they might give. Um, If I asked you that question, what would you be willing to fight for? What would you be willing just to go to battle over? Some of you guys might say, man, I'd be willing to fight for my family. Like if somebody came after my family, I'd be willing to fight for them. Some of you guys, it's a little bit more personal. You would say, man, if somebody came after my character or if they came after my, um, my identity or my popularity or, or the respect that I think I deserve, I would fight for that. I would fight against others who threaten that. Um, some of you guys might go the really godly route and say, I would fight for the truth. I would fight for the truth of the gospel. I'm willing to fight for that. Um, others of you, you know, you might just be really shallow, and it, we'll just call a spade a spade. It might be a little shallow. You'd be willing to fight for your iPhone. You know, somebody coming after your phone, my iPad, my AirPods, you know, like, I'm fighting you for that. You might be willing to fight them for your video game systems. I don't know, but what are you willing to fight for? And it's an interesting question. What are you willing to really give up something to lay down, to even go through the pain and agony of protecting? What are you willing to fight for? Um, I was thinking about that a lot, and, and then I asked this next question to myself. I thought, you know, what do you think has caused the biggest problems for Christianity ever since Jesus ascended back into heaven and left us with this mission to go take the gospel to nations? What do you think has caused the biggest issue? I mean, what, what, what has stopped Christianity from growing? Is it culture? The devil? Okay, it's a good one. Complacent Christians, okay. Fear, hypocrisy, compromising, okay. Persecution, yeah. All those things definitely get in the way of Christianity growing and flourishing. But I would, I would argue with you that if I could biblically make a case where it probably slows the growth of Christianity or hurts the witness of the church the most... It's how Christians fight among one another. Because Jesus said that they will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And I think the biggest problem that when the world looks at Christianity a lot of times is they see us fighting and treating each other badly. And therefore, when that happens, it causes issues where they go, wait, wait, wait. You follow a God who you say is merciful, loving, forgiving, kind? And that's how you treat each other? You talk about being in God's family and yet you, you fight and you bicker and you backstab and gossip? That, that's a problem. That really hurts the testimony of the church. One of the most um, misquoted, and I would say this this way, out of context, misquoted verses in the Bible comes out of the Gospel of Matthew when it talks about where two or three are gathered, there Jesus is. This is one of, the, it, 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 it is personal for me, 
don't like how people misuse that verse. And you will hear it, and, and God bless you. I'm not calling you out. And so if, if you feel like you have used this in a prayer of your own because you thought it was okay or you've heard other people, I'm not saying that you need to, like, guilt trip them and be like, sinner, like you are a heathen. Or if you've said this, you got to go, ooh, I question my salvation. Now, it's not like that, okay? But you just got to get taught correctly. Okay, so if you ever hear somebody say, Lord, we gather here together, and we know where two or three are gathered, there you are as well. And we are so thankful that you are in this presence. That's a load of bogus stuff. Because you know what? If you're alone, like the Apostle Paul was in prison, was God not with him? Two or three were not gathered in his name. Was he alone? Was Jesus not around? No, Jesus was there. So two or three are gathered does not mean that Jesus is automatically there. What that verse is talking about, if you have to know, is how you deal with conflict among people, which is kind of relevant to this discussion, but where two or three are gathered to diffuse conflict and they approach somebody who has wronged the church or is acting wrongly, where two or three are gathered in love and gathering in truth to confront somebody with the truth, their God will be in the presence of that situation to help bring restoration. That's what that verse really means. Okay, But, but what I think is really funny is that two or three are gathered, here God is. I think there's, a, there's actually a funnier way you could think about this verse incorrectly. But where two or three are gathered, you know what I do think is going to happen? Problems. Because you get two or three sinners together, you know what they're going to do? They're going to argue. They're going to fight. They're going to disagree. They're going to get on each other's nerves. They're probably going to say something they probably shouldn't say. You know, like I remember back when Morgan and I were going through premarital counseling, one of the funniest lines, but probably the most uh, straightforward, truthful line that they said in our premarital counseling is, you know what marriage really is? It's two sinners living under one roof together. How do you think that's going to go? It, it, get, it can get ugly at times. You get on each other's nerves. You do things that are hurtful. It, that's just the reality. Where two or three sinful people are gathered, it's going to get messy. That's what church is. It's multiple sinful people gathering, trying to worship a holy God. It gets messy. But I, I do think that we have to be careful how we fight together and, and if we are in fights with one another because I do think that causes a great trouble for our testimony. Look at James 4, 1 through 3. He asks the question that we're asking. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions James starts this off like he has in so many other times, and really, there are some commentators who say you could break out the book of James by all the times he asks a question. Like, every time he asks a question, it's like a statement, and it's a new section. But he asks the question, question, what causes fights between people? What causes it? And I think, on the surface, our gut reaction is to say there are external or outside things that caused a fight. Like, somebody acted wrongly. They did something dumb. They, they messed up, and so that caused a fight between people or between me and that person. Some of you guys might be thinking, like, you are in a conflict or a fight with somebody else in this room, and as you're thinking about that, you're like, what caused that fight? And it's like, I know what it is. It's something they did. But James is really smart, and God's word understands how to read into us. Conflict doesn't start because of all this stuff that's out there. Conflict starts because of the stuff that's in us. And that's what we really don't like admitting. I mean, you, you go all the way back to Adam and Eve, right? They did the same thing. Who told you 
that you were naked after they bit the apple or the fruit or whatever it was that was forbidden, right? Who told you? Adam. It was the woman's fault. She, she handed it to me. Eve. It was the serpent's fault. He's deceived me. I mean, we're always looking that there's always somebody else's fault in a fight, and then we really rarely look at ourselves. But James's answer to that question is, it's not the other people, it's not the situation, it's not that you were dealt a raw hand, it's not that somebody hurt you. What oftentimes is the source of fights between people is that you have something within you that is a passion that is fighting even internally within you. And that passion and that desire that is at war within you, there is sin in your heart. And so, I'm, hear me, I'm not saying that there are people who have gone out of their way and they have messed up and they have caused an issue between you. And then somehow you think like, oh, what did I do wrong? No, there are genuinely times that there are people who have just flat out acted wrongly and created conflict. I'm not talking about those types of situations, okay? What I'm talking about is the types of situations where... There are, there are problems between you and another person, and I think oftentimes those problems, there's two sides to the story, right? And, and there are times where there are passions within you that are causing a conflict between you and other people. The reason that happens is because we're always willing to fight for what we desire. And I started this by saying, what are you willing to fight for? And I would say that we are willing to fight for the stuff that we want the most, even if it's most dangerous, this is why for years, and I know now, like in 2022, this is not as big of a deal as it is because now um, vaping is like the new cigarette. But like when I was coming up, like cigarettes, that was the thing that they were trying to get out of young people's hands. And you could slap, I mean, literally, if you ever look at a cigarette box, the Surgeon General warning is like this big. It takes up like 80% of the box packaging, Okay. But yet people still picked up these cigarettes, these cancer sticks, and literally lit them up over and over and over again. No matter what the warning says, no matter clear science tells you that this is bad for your health, that it will lead to detrimental effects in your health. Not like it could. No, it will. Like, science proves it. I still remember when, when they came into my school, like, I was a fifth grader, and this policeman came in, and they had the D.A.R.E. program, and it was against drugs, and he brought in this uh, set of human lungs that were like encased in plastic okay so it's from a body that they had taken out and it showed what normal human lungs look like and it you know there's like little spots of like like darkness on them but for the most part they're kind of a palish yellowish pinkish color and then he pulled out another one and it was the same set of lungs from a smoker and i'm telling you the contrast could not be more stark it was literally black and that's what the difference between the two lungs looked like. And it was like a scare tactic, but it worked for fifth grade me, okay? Fifth grade me looked at it and go, I don't want that in my body. That looks like just death. And that's what it is. And yet people still would do that behavior, even if it's dangerous, even if they've been told it's dangerous, because we're willing to fight for what we want. And James is saying, listen, the, a lot of the times, the things that you deeply desire, as we talked about last week, are self-centered, and they're about you and making you, yourself bigger and feel better and just you could care less about what everybody else wants. And so you have these things at war within you. And the trouble with it is, is that we don't think that these things actually are bad. We, are, we convince ourselves that if I get that stuff that I ultimately desire, I'll be happy. And that's not true. That's the deception that Satan has laid out for us. Here's the danger of desire like that. It turns it into stuff. Number one, you, you want what you don't have. You just want something you don't have. 
unchecked desire, and and again, I'm not talking about every single desire. There are good desires that are God-given. God puts them in you, but, but we have to be so careful because I know in my own heart that it is so easy to convince yourself that what you want is from the Lord, but really it's just you telling everybody and putting a mask of spiritual reality, spiritualness on it, and saying, oh, God told me to do this, but you, you really didn't study God's word for it, you didn't pray for it, you didn't seek counsel on it, but it's really just something you want, and it doesn't align with God's word. I'm talking about those types of things that we mask, or things that are flat out sinful that you all know are wrong, that are completely against God's word, and you could care less, you just desire it anyway. And, and, and if that's you, like you are just like all those cigarette smokers who literally look at the Surgeon General's warning and say, I could care less about that. I'm going to take this anyway. But the danger of desire is wanting what you don't have, coveting what you cannot obtain. And I think if you look at scripture, if you look at human history, there is a clear picture that there is a ruthlessness to when we desire and want what we do not have, we'll do whatever it takes. There, we are ruthless people. You know how I know that? Like, okay, David, a guy who was a man after God's own heart. That sounds really nice, but you know what probably the, the most famous thing that David did, right? He desired a, a woman who was married, and he was ruthless to get her. So much so that she, he sent her husband to the front line of the battlefield to get him killed. Like, that's ruthless. You want something so bad, you will do whatever it takes to get what you do not have. And we have to be so careful because we will become just bent on maintaining that. If we, if we get it, we're going we're gonna to do whatever we can to maintain that thing that we got. You know, the easy example is like money. Like if you get a lot of money, you're just going to start to do whatever you can to maintain your money. You're not just going to maintain it. You're going to try to get more of it because here's the funny thing about money. It goes away, and so you always got to get more of it, right? It's the same thing with, like, you know, popularity. Like, you want to be fed and and feel good about yourself by being told that you're good by other people your age, and so you want that affirmation. So once you get it, you want to maintain that. So you know what you do, right? You start living a certain way. You start dressing a certain way. You start talking a certain way to maintain that level of popularity and acceptance by others around you. Like, that's the currency that a lot of you guys deal with. You deal with that. You you deal with social currency where you want to maintain a high level in other people's viewpoints and minds. So you'll change the way you talk, the change the way you act, you'll change the things that you do, the way you dress. You'll maintain it. You'll also do things to increase it. You, You will become so bent on doing whatever it is to maintain and increase that thing that you want. And that, James is telling you, leads you to doing some ruthless things. I've seen it. I've seen the way that when you want to be seen as a certain way by others, you'll steamroll people who care and genuinely love you. Some of you guys have been on the receiving end of that steamroll effect where you've been there for somebody, but all of a sudden they started getting attention from an in crowd, right? And all of a sudden they neglected you and steamrolled you and all the kindness and love and the friendship that you once had with that person, they steamrolled you because they just wanted to get more popularity. And you stood in their way. Because other people said, you weren't cool. Some of you guys have done that to other people. Maybe you've done that to people in this room where you've steamrolled somebody else for the sake of being seen as popular by the in crowd. 
That's disgusting. It's ruthless. But this is what James is warning against. These are the types of passions that are at war within us. And when I say they're at war within you, you know what it's doing? It's destroying the things that are good in your life. You got to be really careful about wanting what you do not have. If that's a desire that is always rotating in your heart, always looking. And I'll tell you what, man, I, I pick on it so much, but the Instagram, social media of the world just feeds this. It does. It just ignites this sense in your heart to want what you don't have. I want to look like that person. I want the life. That, I want the vacation they have. I want the friends they have. I want the boyfriend. I want the girlfriend they have. I want the good grades they have. I want the accolades. I want, I want, I want. And all the while, you're losing sight of the good things that God has given you, and you're becoming discontent with the life you have. Wanting what you don't have is the first desire that is at war within you. The second one that James says is very similar to it. It's coveting what you cannot obtain. The difference here with the coveting part is that you're, there's a willingness to look at something that you cannot get, but you want it so bad that it becomes the object of your worship. It's the, I wrote down, and it's on the notes behind me, but, but it's the, the thing of ultimate concern for you. What are you ultimately concerned for? And I think, really, when you go back to the original question I started off with tonight, what are you willing to fight for? If you ask yourself that question, talk about the things in your life or the people in your life, what are you willing to fight for? I would tell you that whatever you answer that question with is probably the object of your ultimate concern. It's the thing you are the most concerned about. And you're going to do whatever you can to defend it, to, to fight for it. If somebody threatens it, you will fight them over it. But that is the stuff. It's coveting what you cannot obtain. And that will eventually, eventually lead you chasing after things that you'll, you'll never be satisfied with. I, I'm going to quote him in a second, but I was reading Charles Spurgeon's thoughts on, on this passage, and he says something amazing. He says, you know, it's amazing that people want to be successful, but you realize successful people are still always frustrated because they always want more, and they continue to fail. Even the most successful person fails, and so it's this continual chasing, 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 and there's just never a satisfaction, and it's, it's literally like, for me, I'm just thinking about, like, you're trying to grasp sand, and it's like you're trying to hold a handful of sand, but if you ever do that, you can only hold so much, it's going to spill out. The more you grab the sand, it's going to fall through your fingers, and it's impossible to hold onto every grain of sand when you just dig your hands into a sand bucket, right? That's what it's like chasing after the things of this world, coveting that stuff. So here's a simple truth to walk away from this tonight with. Ready? Envy and coveting will leave you frustrated like chasing the wind. You ever, you ever seen somebody chase after the wind? Like the wind's blowing and they're just running. Like, oh, I'm going to catch the wind. That's the dumbest thing you could do. You would look like a crazy person if you were out there just running back and forth because then the wind changes directions and then all of a sudden you just change direction too and somebody's looking out their window at you running around your front yard going back and forth like a dog that can't decide which way is right and which way is left and you're just following the scent of the breeze. They look at you like you, you need to be in a padded wall. Cell with white padded wall, maybe a straight jacket. Let that person, you know, hee. You know, that's, that's what you would look like if you're just chasing after the wind. But envy and coveting, if that's what your desires are doing to your heart, they're going to leave you frustrated, and you're going to be chasing the wind. 
And the truth is that God wants something so much better for you. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. I said I'd quote him. But he said, if a person's desires are the longing of their fallen nature, worldly, earthly things, not godly things, but earthly stuff, stuff that's around here, if they begin and end with self, if the chief end for which one lives is not to glorify God, but to glorify self, then one can desire but will not have it. You're going to want stuff so bad and you're never going to be able to grasp it. It's going to slip through your fingers all the time. He's acknowledging that because what he's saying is the chief end of man is not to glorify self and get everything that you want. That's not your end goal in your life. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But until you get the second part of that where you enjoy God forever, you're always going to desire but never have enough. You're always going to want more, and it will never satisfy. You're always going to seek and still be looking for more. James says this is the result of this is what he says in verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And here, here's what it ultimately is saying is that when you have a heart that is so soaked in envy and coveting, you don't go to God and ask for stuff because you just rely on yourself. You don't go to God. You don't acknowledge that you need God, so you do not have because you do not ask him. That, that's some people's problem. The other side, for other people who have a problem, is this. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. So some people don't even ask God because they're so self-reliant, and they don't care what God wants. They just want what they want, and they don't really trust that God's going to do anything for them anyway. So they don't even spend time praying. And then there's other people who pray, but James says you pray wrongly because all you want to do is spend it on your passions. You're asking God to do things so that therefore you can just further your own agenda. You just want to get your stuff in line. And this is a problem. This is not how prayer is supposed to look. And when I, when I read this passage, this is actually notes that I took a long time ago when I read this passage. I asked myself, and I would challenge you, how many of your prayers are motivated by personal gain? Here's another, here's another way to ask this question. I've probably asked this before. If you wrote down all the prayers that you have asked from God in the last seven days, would it improve anybody else's life or would it just improve your life? That's a really good test. Are my prayers motivated by selfish personal gain or am I praying in the will of God? Because I'm praying in the will of God. Yeah, there are going to be things that I'm going to ask God to help me with. Absolutely. I'm going to ask him to, to stoke something in me. And, and I'm probably going to address things in my life that are broken and need fixing and situations that are difficult and stressful. Yes, absolutely. But if that is the central focus of your prayer life, then you fall into the second category where you ask and do not receive because you're asking wrongly. All you want God to do is further your agenda and your passion. So how often are you praying for other people, or even just praying for God's will to be done, praying that God would be worshiped, praying and exalting God, thanking God for who he is. How often are you doing that? So there's really just two things that I think um, I, I thought of rem as remedies, because I feel like James really prescribes problems as a good doctor would. He kind of shows us where we're sick and where we have issues like envy and coveting, and then he's going, okay, like what do you do to fix it, right? And so, so how do you fix this? So I think the opposite of, of doing what we just talked about. Number one, pray, pray correctly. 
Rather than focusing your central prayer life on yourself, pray correctly. Like Psalm 119, 36, the psalmist says, Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. That, that could be as, going, as simple as this, going back to the beginning and saying, God, listen, I know that I want stuff that is selfish. God, help me change my desires. Help just transform my heart. Change me from the inside out. Make me want more of what you want in my life and renew my heart because I need you to do that. Incline my heart to your testimony and to your self, not to selfish gain. I need to get away from selfishness. So, so ask God, change my appetite for things. I use the word appetite because it, it's what you're longing for. It, it change what you're longing for so much. Ask God, redirect my desires to things that are good, that you want, not what I want. And then ask God to do his will, not yours. This is just following the steps of Jesus, right? Jesus says, Lord, if this cup of pain and the wrath that I'm about to bear on the cross, if it could pass for me, please take it away. But if not, not my will, but yours be done. And that's, that's really what it comes down to, is asking God's will to be done, not your own. That's the first, is, is honestly just crying out and praying correctly to God. The second one um, is a practice that I, I've gotten into the habit of myself often, and, and this is what Bible reading does for me, why I think it's so valuable and why I'm passionate about it for you all, is you have to preach God's word to yourself, because honestly, you guys know, like, there's a lot of people in the psychology realm right now talking about, like, positive self-talk. You know, that, that's great, and self-talk is a useful tool, but here's the problem with self-talk. It's coming from you, right? And, and if you know anything about yourself, like I know about myself, my words are very limited. My words are not powerful. My words are limited by what I know, and the older I get, the more I realize I don't know too much. So, so my words are limited, and so I need to preach somebody else's word to myself. And if I want to preach the world's words to me, then I'm going to be taking everything that I hear from outside sources, the songs I listen to, the TV I watch, the books I read, the things I look at on social media or the, the Internet. That's what's going to talk to me. Something's going to talk to me. It's either myself, other sources, or I can choose to have God's word be the source that I allow to talk to me. And, and, and here's what God's word says about contentment when you want to deal with envy and, and coveting. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. You need to convince yourself, and I need to convince myself, that godliness, being content in the things that I have in the Lord and what God has given me, is a great gain. It's not a loss. We have to stop thinking that, oh, well, I'm just giving all this up for Jesus. You're getting something. Like when you lay down your life and, and give over your desires and place them in the hands of God, you know what you get? You get more of Jesus in your life. And we have to start realizing that that's a great gain. We got to believe that that is valuable and worthwhile and is worth so much more than all the other stuff that this world can offer you. Because all the rest of the stuff the world can give you is like sand that just slips through your fingers. You're not going to ever grasp it. But we just talked about and saying that Jesus Christ is a sure and steady anchor. You can... You can hold on. You can trust. You can guarantee he's rock solid. And so we got to see that godliness, following him, giving our lives over to him is, is great gain. And being content with that. Being content that Jesus is enough. That I could lose it all, but if I still have him, then I'm good. And if you're not there right now, that's where you just go, God, show me. Help me really firmly grasp that. But you, 
preaching God's word to yourself. And then later on in that same chapter, I'm going to end with this, Timothy 6, 11. It says this, Paul writes, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And he's talked about all these other things. Idolatry is one of them. Envy and strife and all these other things. Flee away from that. Flee away from fighting with people. Flee away from the conflict. Flee all that and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And this is the type of stuff that I have to continue to preach to myself because what it does is it reminds me what God's word promises to me and what he's telling me is good. And if I can preach that to myself and I can fill my head with those things, it'll help change what I'm willing to fight for. I'm willing to fight for my godliness. I'm willing to fight for my holiness. That's what I want to fight for every day. I want to fight against the sin in my life. I want to kill it. I want to put it to death. I hate the stuff in my life that is ungodly and is sinful. And when I mess up and I slip back into it, I feel sick afterwards. I want to fight that. I'm willing to fight for that because I'm content with knowing Christ more. That's, that's preaching God's word to yourself. Asking God, praying that his will would be done in your life today. That's how we fight envy and covetousness. And I guarantee you, if you can fight those things, then this group and any other group that you're a part of, you will see conflict decrease and you will see love increase and it will be a place that you genuinely enjoy being in, not a place you dread. And my hope is that that is never how you feel about coming to church. That you don't dread it because you're in conflict with one another, because you're envying and coveting things that somebody else has but that you deal with the conflict appropriately and godly. And you would look and see that there is contentment in Christ and having more of him. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you again for this time together. I just lift up these guys and girls to you. And um, Lord, we are bombarded with always being told we need more, we want more, we don't have enough. God, I just pray that in the midst of all that noise, you would show each of us and train our hearts to be content with you and know that you are more than enough. You are all we need, and I pray that we would grasp that. It, it wouldn't just be talk. It would be genuinely how we feel and what we know to be true. So God, I thank you for this time together. Thank you for these guys and girls and just what an encouragement is to be with them each week and um, to worship with them and to go through your word together. And may it challenge us, may it train us in righteousness, may it continue to draw us closer to Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.